Hello, and welcome to A History of Jazz, a podcast dedicated to exploring jazz history one record at a time. I'm your host, Arik Devins. All right, so at the end of the last episode, I mentioned that we were going to spend our time this episode discussing what the rest of the industry was up to in 1918 and closing the books on that year. And when I said that, that's what I intended to do. But as I started preparing that episode, I realized that there was enough information about the original Dixieland Jazz Band and what they were doing in 1918 to justify a whole episode. And so this time, we're going to look at just that, what they were doing, what was going on, and we'll save the closing of 1918 for another episode. Okay, so... As I mentioned in the 1917 episode about the original Dixieland Jazz Band, after their initial overnight success with Victor, they didn't record with that label for quite some time due to contractual issues and lawsuits resulting in the title name changes and uh, appropriation uh, accusations and various things that were going on. So it wasn't until March of 1918 that they had resolved those conflicts and were back in the recording studio for Victor. Now, the records they made in 1918 for Victor didn't sell quite as well as the ones in 1917, those first two, but they were still very popular. And their most successful song in 1918 is the first one we're going to hear today, and it's called At the Jazz Band Ball. Now, you may remember that we played a song called At the Jazz Band Ball in our 1917 episode, and that was the version recorded for the Aeolian Vocalion label. Now, the next year, they recorded basically the same song, changing jazz to jazz as the name changed, for Victor. Now, the Victor version is really very similar to the Aeolian version, and I'm going to play both of them back-to-back because I think it illustrates just how little sort of live improvisation was going on at this point in jazz history. Most of the improvisation in jazz at this point was when they were writing the song, especially for a band like the original Dixieland Jazz Band, who didn't write anything down. In fact... It was a problem for the music industry when they arrived because at that time you would make a lot of secondary money on sheet music and it was very difficult to put down into sheet music what they were playing when the uh, publishers would try to do a note-for-note reproduction of what was going on. They weren't able to do that and the band had no idea what they were playing so eventually they focused on just getting the melody line down. So We're going to do both versions back-to-back and see how they're different. So the first version is the one I played in the first 1917 episode for Aeolian Vocalion at the Jazz Band Ball. Now we'll hear the same song recorded a year later for the Victor label at the Jazz Band Ball from 1918. 
All right, so hopefully that gave you a nice view into the similarities, a little differences. The recording was a little different too because Aeolian Bacallion was doing vertical cut and Victor was doing horizontal cut, but you can see that they're not wildly different. They're pretty similar. And we'll hear another version of the same song when they get to London in a couple years. At any rate, at this point, jazz was still being marketed as a fad. It was not yet uh, really respected as any kind of art form and you can see that in the way that it was being marketed by the record labels. So for an example, the Victor catalog for June 1918 included this blurb about the band. A jazz band is a unique organization of which it may be said the worse it is, the better it is. If you've heard a jazz band before and feel that you already know the worst, try this record. Yet out of the mass of sounds, there emerges tunes, and as the music proceeds, you get order out of chaos, and a very satisfactory order at that. One that not merely invites you, but almost forces you to dance. So around this time period, uh, the author of the primary autobiography of the band that I'm using, H.O. Brunn, tells a story that has been repeated widely, but is almost certainly apocryphal, meaning it probably didn't happen. The only known source for this is the extremely unreliable Nick LaRocca himself, but it's a good story, so I thought I would share it. Supposedly, Columbia, in their desire to compete with Victor and the original Dixieland Jazz Band, sent a guy named Ralph Peer, who was their director of A&R, to New Orleans to try to find a competing jazz band. As the story goes, after three weeks, he wired, I'm coming back. There are no jazz bands in New Orleans. Now, as I said, I think that story is absolutely ludicrous. It is an example of Nick LaRocca trying to solidify the notion that the original Dixieland Jazz Band was the first jazz band, the only jazz band that created jazz, no one else had anything to do with it, and I just think that that's ridiculous, but it's a funny story, so I'm sharing it with you. All right, so let's hear another song from the original Dixieland Jazz Band in 1918. This one's called Fidgety Feet, in parentheses, War Cloud, and the Victor catalog described this song as Fidgety Feet is a clever piece of music by LaRocca and Shields in which a novel rhythmic effect is produced by having two silent beats introduced here and there. The result is highly stimulating. You can never tell just what these jazz fellows are going to do next, but they always contrive to do something you never thought of before. So let's hear that never thought of before silent beat with Fidgety Feet. <laughs> So, as I've alluded to a few times on the podcast, jazz music was originally purely for entertainment and primarily for dancing. Jazz bands, when they were performing, were mostly performing for dancers. And dancers weren't used to such a fast-paced music. Popular dances of the era like the bunny hug and the turkey trot were quickly discarded as options for dancing to jazz music as they were way too slow. They were 
for really for sweet dance music and, and slower music. In fact, it was such an issue that the leading organization of dance instructors, which was known as the Inner Circle, which I think is an awesome name, made jazz the leading topic of discussion at their convention. And they published an article called How to Dance the Jazz in the New York American Newspaper. Uh, in that article, they advised, the jazz, the most nervous of music, is wedded to one of the most erratic dances of the season. Eccentric as is the fickle, changeable, erratic dance, it has the approval of the inner circle, the body of dancing teachers that stands for progress in the Terpsichorean art in America. At its convention, held in New York in September, it recommended the jazz as a kind of paprika of the evening's program. The jazz is the evening's romp. So what they're talking about there, it's a little confusing because they're using jazz to mean two different things. They're obviously talking about jazz music, but they're also talking about the jazz, which was a dance created by a guy named Oscar Duria, a prominent dance instructor, and as he described it, the dance is a foxtrot, but with a peculiar rhythm somewhat different from the usual foxtrot. It's much slower. The original Dixieland jazz band consists of a piano, cornet, trombone, clarionet, and trap drums. The peculiar, somewhat discordant melody is said to be produced by tuning each of the instruments at a different pitch, and to end some of the strains, they occasionally play what we have termed a crazy cadenza. Music is 4-4 tempo, but for convenience in teaching the dance, the count of one has the value of two musical counts. Description for gentleman partner, counterpart waltz position throughout. So you can see in this description that there was a pretty common confusion as to how jazz worked. Uh, a lot of people thought at this point that jazz was a trick music and that there was something funny about how they were producing these sounds. No one thought that you could just play these instruments and make something that sounded like jazz. And one of the theories at the time was that the harmonies and how fast they were changing were a kind of mechanical discord that you would tune each of the instruments in different pitches and that's how jazz would come out, which of course is ludicrous, but it's pretty funny. All right, so let's hear another song from uh, 1918. This one's called Clarinet Marmalade Blues and it was created primarily to feature clarinet player Larry Shields. Let's listen to it now. to this dance called the jazz there was another newly popular dance that really exploded as the jazz age begins in the 20s and it was called the shimmy it came from san francisco's barbary coast and it was originally called the shimmy shawabble later shortening just to the shimmy it was popularized by two guys named frank hale and Sidney patterson who were a vaudeville dance team that eventually teamed up with the original dixieland jazz band for a touring act that vaudeville act actually started in 1917 and featured this new dance with the new music of the band. And the shimmy was primarily an exhibition dance. It was performed solo, 
And it was done with the toes together and the heels apart and the arms raised to sort of shoulder level. I've linked in the show notes to a video of what this dance looked like. It's the classic idea of what you have in your head of a flapper. So the original Dixie and Jazz Band would play vaudeville shows early and then rush over to Ryzen Weber's restaurant where they were still headlining. They would also play Sunday concerts at the Winter Garden, which featured, among many other performers, a young Fred Astaire. They also played private engagements. That goes back all the way back to this era, including a senior dance at a girls' high school on Long Island. But uh, more profitably, they played parties thrown by Al Jolson, where LaRocca, who was a famous teetotaler or someone who doesn't drink, said, the champagne flowed like water. All right, so let's hear another song now from 1918. This one's called Tiger Rag. So we're in 1918, and as I mentioned in our 1917 episode, this was in the middle of World War I, and draft notices started to go out, and they were sent for pretty much everyone in the band, everyone except for drummer Tony Sabarbaro, who was too young. The band, as I mentioned, didn't write their music down, so the loss of any member to the draft was kind of a big deal, uh, for reasons in addition to just losing someone to the war. Uh, And in World War I, there was really no concept of what would be called an industrial deferment, like You couldn't say, well, we can't lose this guy. He's too important to our business. So uh, they all had to go in for testing. Now, at his medical review, Nick LaRocca's shoulder, which had a nervous condition that was exacerbated by his playing jazz all the time, began to act up with an intense twitch. At first, the doctors didn't believe that it was real. They thought he was faking it to try to get out of the draft. But eventually, after pulling him aside and studying him and talking it over, one of them said, get out of here before you have us all doing it. So LaRocca was classified 4F, which is the designation for physically unable to perform, but federal agents actually tailed him for a few weeks to make sure the twitch was really genuine. They would show up at different restaurants he was eating at, they would show up at Weber's and make sure that the twitch was still happening. He actually never fully lost that condition, but it apparently did improve pretty, pretty greatly after he stopped playing music. Clarinetist Larry Shields was also deferred for medical reasons, but in his case, it was because of a highly sensitive nervous system that caused him to have trouble sleeping at night. Uh, there's an anecdote from when the band was playing at Ryzen Weber's. Eddie Edwards, Larry Shields, and Tony Sabarbaro were sharing one room, and Edwards remembered one night in particular where Shields woke up screaming, They're coming after us! And it woke up Edwards, and he responded, That's right, better have your musket ready. Okay, so Tony Sabarbaro was too young. Nick LaRocca and Larry Shields had medical deferments, but Eddie Edwards was drafted on July 20th, 1918, and he only got to play with the band for another 10 days before he was sent to training camp, and he never rejoined the group. So the band needed a replacement trombonist, and with their fame at the time, 
and how much money they were making, they could have had basically whichever European-American musician they wanted. But in the end, they picked a cornet player and taught him to play trombone instead. I've been unable to figure out exactly why they did that, except that they kind of already knew the guy and they were friends with him, so maybe it was just familiarity. They chose a guy named Emil Bootmouth Christian, who was a cornet player who'd been friends with the band back in New Orleans. And they practiced for an intense five weeks. They would play the Victor records they'd recorded over and over and over again until he could approximate the sounds that Edwards was making. In fact, he was so good at imitating Edwards, and jazz at this point, as I mentioned, was only really improvised before the recording, that almost no one was able to tell the difference between the two musicians. On November 23rd, 1918, they were signed for a 10-week engagement in London to start in March of 1919, and we'll be talking about that engagement in a future episode, but I thought I'd mention that they were offered a salary of 220 pounds a week, which, adjusting for inflation and in today's dollars, would be the equivalent of $11,486 a week today. So let's hear another song from 1918. This one's called Skeleton Jangle, and supposedly the trombone solo is inspired by Franz Liszt's Hungarian Rhapsody Number no. 2, which was a very, very popular piece at the time and was played by a lot of concert bands in New Orleans. Wilbur Swetman played it. It was, it was quite well known. I'm not exactly sure I hear it. I kind of can kind of get it. So I'm going to play the two of them back to back and, and let you make up your mind. One other interesting thing about this recording of Skeleton Jangle is that, so there's two trombone solos, and we're going to hear the first one. And Sort of near the beginning of that, there's like a pause. Weirdly, it sounds like something went wrong, and it's because something did. Trombonist Eddie Edwards banged his slide against a chair, which moved the mouthpiece off of his lips and caused the interruption. So he actually stops playing at a point, but this was in an era where you didn't do a lot of takes, and so that's what we have on the record. So here it is then, Skeleton Jangle. <laughs> Now that we've heard that, we'll listen to Franz Liszt's Hungarian Rhapsody Number no. 2 to try to hear the similarities.
So I've talked about kind of everyone in the band except for one member, pianist Henry Ragas. Ragas wasn't drafted, but he did come down with the flu. Now, the flu of 1918 wasn't your typical everyone gets sick for a couple weeks flu season. It was a pandemic. It infected 500 million people around the world. 50 to 100 million people died, which was 3 to 5% of the total population of the world at that time. It's one of the deadliest disasters in human history. Life expectancy in the United States dropped by about 12 years as a result of the flu. Wartime censors in Germany, Britain, France, the United States censored reports about the flu. They didn't want people to worry during a time of war. But in Spain, which was neutral, they were reported, which gave the impression, inaccurate though it was, that Spain was especially hard hit, which resulted in a nickname for this pandemic of Spanish flu. So Ragas contracted Spanish flu, and his lifestyle and physical condition, which was already suffering from late hours and a lot of heavy drinking, made him kind of an easy target to get sick. He was also dealing with a bunch of family problems from the previous summer that had led to him drinking even more than usual. In fact, the band actually sent him home to New Orleans to recover for a while, but when he returned, he was even worse than before. He wasn't eating, he was missing gigs due to alcoholism, and eventually he got the flu and then pneumonia. His medical expenses, which were helped by the other members of the band, piled up and left him completely destitute, which is a situation I cannot believe is still as possible now as it was a hundred years ago. Good job, America. He eventually succumbed to his illness on February 18th, 1919, which was just two days before the band left for that trip to England I mentioned, and he was only 28 years old. A few days later, the following text appeared in all the New York City newspapers. In fond remembrance of our dear pal and pianist, H.W. Ragus, who departed from this world February 18th, 1919. May his soul rest in peace, the Dixieland Jazz Band. All right, so that's about it for this episode. We're going to close out with one more song from 1918, the hilariously titled Satanic Blues. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, and I'll see you next time. You can follow along with the show on Twitter at JazzHistoryPod, or check out the website at AHistoryOfJazz.com. Every episode, I'll be including a link to a Spotify playlist of all the songs we heard. You can subscribe in iTunes or Overcast or wherever great podcasts can be found. If you want to participate, please leave a rating or a review. You can follow me on Twitter at DanielTiger, and I hope you enjoyed the show.